Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Brain Food Podcast. I am Casey Thomas and this week I want to talk to you about grains. I've been getting asked this question a lot and it largely stems from the book called Grain Brain. Now before we do get into it, please be sure to go ahead and leave me a rating and review if you have ever listened to any of these podcasts at all. I love hearing your feedback and knowing what you like and what you don't like. If you can also, please do subscribe. I want you to be the first to know when I have more episodes that are going live. And with that out of the way, let's start talking about grains. So Grain Brain is the New York Times bestselling book. It was number one on the list for quite some time. And most of the anti-grain sentiment, as far as I can trace it back, seems to come down to this book. The book basically claims that carbohydrates and gluten in particular from grains are harmful to the brain. And the book claims that the this gluten and this carb content, this leads to all sorts of brain disorders like Alzheimer's disease, depression, ADHD, and basically anything else that you can think of. So what I want to do today is I want to talk in more detail about grain brain specifically, and then compare it to what the science actually says. All right, so let's get into it. So before we start this discussion, we have to get some definitions out of the way. So the first thing you should know is what are grains, right? (laughs) Uh, The term grain refers to both cereals and legumes. However, when you ask most people and you say the word grain, they usually aren't thinking of legumes at all. And I'm completely fine with this because the two are distinct nutritionally. And so it makes sense to think about them differently as well. So if we omit legumes, then we can define grains as a cultivated cereal crop that we use as food. Wheat is probably the most famous grain, (laughs) uh, but it also includes other kinds of grains, things like sorghum, corn, millet, barley, oats, rice, and rye. Those are probably the most common ones. Now, there is a family of plant that is very closely related to these cereal plants, and those are what we call pseudo cereals. (laughs) And this includes things like amaranth, buckwheat, chia, quinoa. And you might recognize some of those because those are more trendy grains, I'm putting it in quote, that people are (laughs) trying to eat these days. But pseudo cereals are gluten-free, and so I'm going to be omitting them from this discussion. Unless you guys are curious about them and want me to do a deeper dive into them, I can. Just know that they are an alternative to some of these other cereals. Now, historically, Dry grains are a staple food, and this is in large part due to their amazing shelf life. Okay, they are super durable, and they can be stored for a very long time before they spoil. They're also incredibly versatile. So grains, they can be eaten directly. You can mill them into flour. You can also press them for their oils. All right, so this huge utility, this amazing shelf life, this durability, this has led there to be a massive global market for cereal grains. Okay, it has an amazing utility. 
within cereal grains is a protein called gluten. And you've probably heard of it. <laughs> gluten, one of its main functional roles for humans is it provides dough with its elasticity. Okay, it's simply a protein in, in these grains and it has its own function for these grain products themselves for that plant. But for us, we're mainly excited about gluten because it provides dough with its elasticity when you when you are making bread. Um, it helps these bread products keep their shape and it also tends to add a chewy texture, which most people enjoy. Now, as far as specific grains and their gluten content, the ones that have the highest amount of gluten are wheat. Wheat has the number one highest, which is why it gets a lot of a lot of flack these days. Uh, but also barley and rye tend to be pretty high in gluten. On the other hand, oats, millet, corn, and rice tend to be a lot lower in gluten, so they tend to not be perceived as being as bad. And in fact, um, oats in particular, they are naturally gluten-free. However, they are typically processed in facilities with these other gluten-containing grains. And so unless you are buying specifically gluten-free oats, then you are probably getting um, a little bit of gluten in your oats, which is why the average oat that you consume does have some gluten in it. Okay, so that covers our definitions. We've talked about grains, we've talked about cereals, we've talked about gluten. Let's get into grain brain. So we should first start with what does it claim? And, oh boy, I could do several essays on this and talk for hours about it, but I'm going to do my best to just keep it, you know, brief and to the point because that's what I want you guys to get is actionable bits of information. So the main takeaway from the book is that if you want to protect your brain, you need to follow a ketogenic diet with lots of vegetables and lots of berries. And just a quick little sidebar, eating a ton of berries, that could probably kick you out of keto, depending on how much you're eating. So that's a little bit confusing and contradictory, if you ask me. Um, I do believe that this book hopped on the keto bandwagon. And, you know, it, it was able to transfer some of the diet popularity to itself by taking this unique spin on something that was already seeing, you know, a lot of headlines. So it kind of just hopped on the bandwagon to, to rise with, with the tide. The book uses as evidence for itself data from our ancestors. The book makes, makes claims about our recent ancestors, you know, about 100 years ago, as well as our ancient ancestors like the hunter-gatherer cultures. And the book claims that these groups of people both ate ketogenic diets. It goes on from there to say that be, because they ate that way, we should eat that way. Now, this is already a logical fallacy, right? I mean, just because your parents did something, does that mean you have to do something, right? This, these are just traditions. So just because someone did something else does not necessarily mean that you should do it. We should actually look at the evidence to see if it's worth you doing. But anyway, let's let's take it at face value. Let's say we should be eating like these, like these two groups, right? Let's assume they're right. <laughs> so it's still laughable, okay? The USDA has kept records on American heating, eating patterns. Americans were eating way more carbohydrate and wheat 100 years ago than they are today. <laughs> All right. And remember, wheat is the highest gluten-containing cereal grain, and gluten is also the enemy in this book. 
this claim is just completely false. All right, we we were not eating a ketogenic diet a hundred years ago. We were eating more wheat and we were eating more gluten. <laughs> now, as to the hunter gatherer evidence, when you actually look at living hunter gatherer societies, okay, which is where we get most of our data because their habits and lifestyles have changed almost negligibly since ancient times. Okay, they're they're a very fascinating group to study. And when you look at them, we see that there is a, a pretty big range in their carbohydrate content. And it is certainly on average, depending on the tribe that you're looking at, tends to be less than the average amount of carbohydrate that Americans are eating. Again, that depends on the tribe. Some are eating more than the average American. Some are eating less than the average American. But on average, the typical hunter-gatherer is eating a little bit less than the average American. And the average for the hunter-gatherers, anywhere from 20 to 40% carbohydrate in their diet, something like that. But what you see is that none are following a ketogenic diet. So <laughs> basically, the evidence the book is trying to cite goes completely against the conclusions it's trying to draw. It says we should eat like our ancestors, and it cites two populations, <laughs> and neither of those populations actually follows the diet that this book is claiming is the best. So a little bit weird there. So in addition to, you know, blaming carbs, blaming gluten for all of these brain problems, the book actually ends up prescribing things that are seemingly unrelated. And what I mean by that is he, the author makes a big point to encourage regular exercise, sufficient sleep, and specific supplements. And so it puts all the blame on the grains and the carbohydrates, but the prescription includes these other variables. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know sleep and exercise help out with brain functioning and brain performance, right? We've talked about this, but you can't tease apart all these variables, all right? Exercise, if you take someone who's completely sedentary and you suddenly have them start exercising, then obviously the brain is gonna get better, okay? The brain loves when you exercise. Same thing with sleep. You take someone who never sleeps, they're sleeping two to four hours, you know, to six hours a night, and you ha suddenly have them start sleeping a lot more, then all of a sudden their brain performance is going to go through the roof. Okay, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Quick little side note about how the book recommends sleep. Um, it doesn't actually have any recommendations. It just says it's going to automatically get better if you increase your exercise and you make the dietary modifications. Now, there is some scientific data that does say, you know, after you do exercise, you tend to have a little bit better sleep. So that's not entirely untrue, but still the, the book lacks clarity as to you know what you should be doing to improve your sleep. But the main issue is that if you have someone who goes from no sleep, is completely sedentary, and is eating a classic, terrible Western diet, and then they suddenly follow everything in this book, then obviously their brain is going to get better. But if you're taking that observation and using it to blame the carbs and grains, that is a logical fallacy. You can't do that because you can't tease apart which of these is actually helping out. And the last thing I want to say is, you know, it, the book did mention some specific supplements. It let's be let's be candid here. The author does have a bit of a financial conflict of interest, and so it makes it a little bit more difficult to trust at face value. But that being said, the specific supplements he recommends aren't bad per se. Some are not doing anything at all and I think are a waste of money. 
Some are making up for a problem that was caused by going low carb, which is kind of funny. And some of them are actually solid. And I don't want to spend time talking about each of these unless you guys want to hear about it. Um, my main focus today is to focus on the grains. So to summarize the book, it is honestly much healthier than the average American lifestyle. Okay. And I do not doubt for a second that if you put every single American on this diet right now, that we would see a national improvement in health and brain performance. However, it falsely puts the blame where it shouldn't, and it runs contrary to its own evidence. And we're going to talk about the science in a little bit, but spoiler alert, this diet is not optimal. And optimal is much different than better than the average American, because that bar is incredibly low. <laughs> okay, so what is the, you know, we're done with grain brain. What does the science say? Now, if you've listened to this podcast previously, you know we've talked about ketogenic diets. But as a recap, the brain's preferred fuel source is carbohydrate. It's only going to use ketones as a backup when the carbs are unavailable. And once those carbs are reintroduced, then the body will revert back to using carbs as fuel instantaneously. If the brain was optimized to use ketones as a fuel, then you would expect the body to prefer them. Right? That's how natural selection and evolution works. <laughs> so that being said, it is very well established that the ketogenic diet is a useful treatment option for certain clinical conditions like epilepsy and seizures. And there are even some promising data on keto ketogenic diets and ketones uh, in helping out with concussion prevention or treatment. But outside of, outside of these uh, very, very specific clinical uses, I have not seen any convincing data whatsoever that ketogenic diets can be used to prevent, to prevent brain issues from arising or to treat established brain disorders. Now, getting back to grains and gluten, there are some people who have an allergic reaction to gluten. This is indisputable. If you have a true allergy to gluten, then you need to follow a gluten-free diet. And if you have a true allergy to gluten, you already know. Go ask anybody that you know who has celiac disease, okay? They will tell you that they have a very severe reaction to gluten. It is not pleasant. It is probably one of the most horrible conditions that I know about. Um, it puts a severe damper on their quality of life. It gets a little bit more interesting when we look at what's been called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And there was an interesting research paper that showed that what these people were sensitive to was not gluten. What they were actually sensitive to was a compound called fructans. Now, fructans are found in nature with our gluten-containing products. And it's not a perfect match, okay? There are some that are very high in fructans and low in gluten and vice versa, okay? But on average, typically fructans are paired up with gluten in nature. And this is why people mistakenly thought that it was a gluten sensitivity initially, because we already had documented evidence of things like celiac disease and people who had issues with gluten. And so the first inclination was, oh, it's, it's that gluten again, right? It makes sense, but it, it was a mistake. What you see is that if you omit gluten-containing foods, 
okay, the, the natural foods from the diet that this is an effective treatment for a fructans sensitivity. And again, this is because most fructans containing foods also have gluten in them. So you emit the gluten containing foods and you've cured the fructan sensitivity. What does not treat fructan sensitivity though is getting gluten-free versions of gluten-containing foods because they still have the fructans in them, which is interesting. And so what I'm saying here is that those people who rode the hype and bought a ton of gluten-free products for their supposed gluten sensitivity, you know, and then they said it made it feel better, they're either placeboing themselves or they're just full of it, okay, and they want to seem like they're cool and trendy. We also have data now showing that complete elimination of gluten-containing foods in people who have no medical reason to do so will actually result in worse long-term health outcomes. So, uh, you know, and when you look at the world and you look at the longest-lived populations on the planet, whole grains are a big proportion of those diets. So to summarize, if you are someone who needs to cut gluten, you already know it and you have already done it. And for this group of people, gluten-free versions of foods is a godsend, okay? This has been super helpful for them. If you suspect that you are sensitive, then cut fructans-containing foods and don't waste your time on gluten-free products. And there are, a ton, there are a ton of lists online that you can look up for, you know, fructan-containing foods. But don't bother yourself with getting gluten-free products because, again, it's not going to help. And if you are neither of these groups of people, if you, you know, you're not allergic to it and you're not sensitive, then don't needlessly eliminate gluten because, like I said, most populations in the world who live the longest are incorporating these and whole grains are nutritious and make up a big proportion of their diets. Okay, this is very different from processed grains. So keyword whole. I'll leave you there for the day. If you can, please be sure to leave me a rating and review. Let me know what you thought of this week's episode. And if you are curious at all about those supplements that I mentioned that the book recommends and you want me to do a deeper dive into that, just let me know. More than happy to talk about those. If you can, also please do subscribe. I truly appreciate it. And it really, really does help me out a lot with um, you know growing this podcast and sharing this information. It has been a true pleasure for me to do these and talk about these things, and I hope it has added some value to you guys. So um, if you can, please please share it around. I'm going to stop talking, <laughs> and I'll let you get back to your day. Thank you for listening. Have a good one. Take care. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.